Welcome to Software Snack Bites. I'm your host, Shomit Ghosh of Bold Start Ventures, where we partner with Dev First and SaaS founders from the first line of code. Today, we're excited to have Julian Alvarez on the show. Julian is co-founder and CEO of Logics Board. And in this episode, we're going to cover scaling a vertical SaaS company, the freight forwarding industry, and a lot more. So welcome to the show, Julian. Of course, Shomit. Thank you for having me. Super excited to be here. So let's start off with your background. How did you and Juan, your brother, end up starting Logics Board? So my brother, Juan, actually came from the freight forwarding industry. He worked at a really large freight forwarding company in the U.S. that got acquired by Merce. But while he was working there, he would show up every day to the house. I would see him answering the phone from all his customers trying to understand where their goods were. He would show up to the office every morning, have 300 emails in his inbox, the majority of them. Again, customers trying to understand where their freight or where their goods were. He was super overwhelmed. And he came to me one day and he's like, hey, I think there has to be a better way to solve this. Like, We should either think about building a new type of freight forwarding company that's tech focused where we could provide great visibility or do something else. So we went out, we researched the market. Sure enough, we kind of identified massive industry. Freight forwarding is so, so large, but everybody was experiencing similar pain points. So we saw this company actually based out of California that a lot of people have heard, which is Flexports. They had gone out and built a digital freight forwarding company, essentially a freight forwarder with great tech. And we love that model. But from our perspective, the biggest opportunity in the space was actually empowering other freight forwarding companies to be able to do the same. So we made the decision that we were going to start Logics Board, really thinking about it from a SaaS perspective, massive industry that was going to go through a digital transformation. How could we come in and layer applications to help these companies level up and do their job in a much better way? That's a little bit of how we started. It was really kind of coming at it from a pain point that Juan was experiencing and looking forward to where we thought the market was going to be five years out, 10 years out. We've been friends since college, so I know your story a little bit more deeply. And I think what's interesting is when you first came out right, of college, like you were doing a bunch of different things. You started different companies, right? I believe actually there was something in the dentist space for a while. And then now you're doing freight forwarding, right? And so walk us through, like, how do you go and transition through completely different industries and learn what's going on? It's a fascinating question. You're right. You know, coming out of college, first I actually went into the lending space in the real estate market, which was a fascinating vertical for me to be in. My parents are both entrepreneurs. They were really focused on the real estate sector. So we identified a niche there on the lending side. So started there, ended up selling our participation in the company, jumped from that to your point to dental technology and dove into the world of hardware, which is a different beast and of its own, that company actually was not the success that we were hoping to be. So I walked out of that kind of licking my wounds, trying to understand what I wanted to do next. And I knew that what I wanted to do was go into an industry that was really massive and ripe for disruption, where I could build a really large company. And it so happened that Juan and I, my brother, were living together at the time. He had just started working at this freight forwarding company. And when we kind of both looked at the world, it was very clear that there was a really big opportunity there. And again, it fits very well with what I wanted to do. Massive industry, ripe for disruption, in need of technology. And then we dove in head on. There's a lot of stories there of how we determined product market fit. How did we determine that the pain was there? It was an absolute grind at the very beginning. Granted, startups are always an absolute grind. 
but there was a massive learning curve that I had to go through personally. It was not an industry that I knew well. So we can dive into that a little bit also. But that's kind of context there. Serial entrepreneur, coming from a family of entrepreneurs, we grew up at the dinner table, always talking about the businesses that our folks were building, kind of embedded into our DNA, frankly. You mentioned one thing earlier, which I definitely want to dive into, which was understanding the freight forwarding industry. We talked about your background, right? It sounds like Juan obviously was in a freight forwarder, so maybe had a little bit more knowledge there, but like still, you guys are going into a new industry you're trying to learn. And if I remember, there was a story where for a while, like you were living in Colombia and I think working out of a customer for, I forget how long, but it was like at least a year, if I remember. And like, literally I'd call you up or I ask you questions. You're like, oh yeah, I'm in, I'm in Colombia with this customer. Like <laughs> just what was going on? First of all, why did that customer even let you embed yourself in there? And how'd you even go about selling that customer? Talk about just like learning everything from the brass tacks there. So I'll give you a little bit of preview, actually, what happened before then, because before we embedded ourselves in this customer, we actually went through a little bit of a journey where, to your point, we were coming into an industry with not a lot of knowledge and understood that we had a big gap there. So what we first started to do, both of us lived in Miami at that point, we literally got in our car and started driving around Miami through the warehouses and going and knocking at these operations and asking people like, hey, can we talk to you just to understand your business? That took a while. I look back and I'm like, oh, I wish I could have done that faster. But it was so instrumental for us to be able to walk into these operations, people being very open to it and understanding their businesses, both from a logistics perspective and how the supply chain worked, but also from what are your problems and how could we potentially solve them with better technology. And we did that I don't know, maybe eight months. Did you know like specifically freight forwarding was what you wanted to target? And then like you just were Google searching like, okay, where's the location? I'm just going to drive up to this random warehouse and knock on the door. How does that even go around? I wish we would have, you know, used kind of the Google location. There's a couple of things that we did. I started building a network of people that were in the freight forwarding industry that opened a lot of doors for us to be able to talk to folks. But the other one was freight forwarding companies tend to consolidate around ports and around airports. So we would go drive around to where the nearest warehouses were. And literally, we were going up, showing up to the front door, knocking and saying, hey, two guys showing up. We want to do some discovery on you. And to my surprise, people were very open to it. I think about this all the time. I mean, we're remote first and kind of fully distributed, but people were so welcoming and so open to chatting with us. But no, it literally was go knock on doors, old school way, do some discovery, what we did, once we started to learn a little bit, we didn't have a lot of money. So we went out and we hired a designer on Upwork. And I think the investment was like $3,000. And we started putting these wireframes together of what the product could potentially be. It was on Envision. You could click on it and it looked like software. And then we would go back to these companies and say, hey, here's what we're thinking of doing. What do you think? Get a ton of feedback, iterate and then start going more and more to these companies to try to understand if it was resonating. I look back a little bit and knowing what I know now, you know, about software companies, the signal back then was actually not super strong. People were telling us like, hey, the concept of what you have makes sense, but this industry is never going to adopt the technology that you're thinking about. And frankly, I think we were believers in what we wanted to accomplish and had a little bit of irresponsible behavior in the sense that we're like, no, this is the way the world is going to work. Let's go do it. Thankfully, that's the way it's turned out. But talk to a lot of people, iterated, 
And I'll bring it back to actually your question because you did call me and you were like, where are you? And I'm like, hey, I'm in Colombia camping out of, you know, at a freight forwarding operation. We got introduced to a large freight forwarding company out of Colombia where we came in with those wireframes and their president and their founder was really excited. And he was like, hey, this makes a lot of sense to us. Why don't you come into my operation and I can give you a testing site, kind of a guinea pig to build around. So we moved there for a year. Thankfully, our roots are Colombian, our family is Colombian. So it wasn't this massive shock to us, but we went into their operation every day into their office for a year, building out the first product, but also continuing to learn a lot of what freight forwarding looked like, talking to a lot of their customers and trying to understand what do you ultimately need to see? What's the most important thing for you? It gave us such a massive advantage, honestly, to be able to dive in and have them I'm so thankful for them for opening up that door for us. But we did that for a year, built our first product. You have two founders coming into an industry with, again, not a lot of logistics knowledge, but even less software knowledge. So the learning curve was massive. But, you know, it was the best experience. It gave us such an entry point and such a window into how these people thought about their business and how their customers thought about their business as well. That allowed us to build the first product. Long story short, we ended up rebuilding that product completely further down the line. I think we learned a lot there of how we could enter the market and where we could add value. That was actually one question I was going to have is I remember you re-architecting the product and basically saying, hey, we're going to go do this. At the time, you also had a decent amount of customers already. Of course, nowhere near the amount of customers you have now, but you know, you still had some customers that were relying upon you. One... What made you be like, okay, we have to go do this re-architecture? And two, do you think that both you and Juan are not necessarily technical, although you learn things very quickly, but in terms of software engineering, do you think that that would have changed if like one of you was or something? Or was that kind of a learning that almost was helpful to creating the platform now that scales to, I mean, hundreds of customers and serves them very well? It's a great question. I think potentially it would have allowed us to move faster if we had more technical knowledge. But I also think we would have gone down the wrong path, frankly. We honed in and focused so deeply on making sure that we had product market fit before we even re-architected the system. By the time we showed up and we started hiring kind of an R&D team, product engineering in Seattle, we relocated there full time after Columbia. I think we had a really good understanding of what product market fit would look like we talked about this a lot in the early days where we would go back and say like, hey, do we have the right approach here? And ultimately, Juan and I felt that we had done so much research, had so many conversations. We were really confident that the product market fit was going to be there. And ultimately, that's the way it materialized. I think potentially, if we would have been more technical, we would have just started to build really quickly and we would have gone down the wrong path. I think one of the things that we learned early on most people considered that the freight forwarding industry, as massive as it is, didn't have a lot of technology. What we ended up finding is that it did. All of these companies used internal operating systems to manage their operation, but they were more geared towards the internal users. I think if we would have started building from scratch, we would have tried to build something that replaced those operating systems. And the big kind of advantage that we had is we were able to understand that replacing those operating systems was not something that was going to be doable. And that really was not where we needed to deliver value. It was thinking about integrating to those systems and building experiences on top of them. That's ultimately what our research led to and where we felt that we could add the most value. But frankly, 
time to value for these companies was really critical. So I think we learned that once we gathered all those learnings, delivering that first product, we understood what mattered to people, what worked, what didn't. That's when we actually started rearchitecting and really thinking about scale, about solving for the broader massive freight forwarding companies, understanding there's hundreds of thousands of freight forwarders out there. So I look back and, you know, again, I mentioned it earlier. Sometimes I'm like, you should have moved faster. Hindsight is 2020. But there was so much learning there that ultimately allowed us to build a solution that was going to scale and deliver value really quickly, gave us a ton of insight, and ultimately, I think, has led to a lot of the success that we've had as a business. That and bringing great people and having great customers in the operation has helped a ton. Yeah. So let's dive into the supply chain industry as a whole. And then I guess within that context, I think a lot of people may not know what freight forwarders do. So kind of then we can talk about specifically what freight forwarders do within the broader supply chain context. But someone's buying a bike and if I buy it from whatever, it gets delivered to my door. I'm very happy, right? Everything, life's good. But like, there's a lot of stuff obviously that happens from the factories and the parts and all these sort of stuff and the shipping and these sort of things. So like in general, I know this is a broad question, but like what are the main components or areas of the supply chain? And then how do freight forwarders specifically fit into that? I mean, you really think about globalization and then you take a step back and even if you're sitting in, in your home, right? You're sitting in a chair, there's couches around you, there's tables, there's toilet paper, there's so many things in a house or any really anywhere in the physical world. A lot of us don't take time to think about like, where did this all come from? I think COVID did put a spotlight in the supply chain where people started to understand that a little bit better. But wherever we're sitting, like most of the stuff in my home actually doesn't come from a warehouse down the road. Like that's where it ultimately comes from, but it probably comes from somewhere in China, somewhere in Asia, potentially from Mexico. So when you think about supply chain, the way the physical goods move, they move across borders and across countries. And there's a lot of different ways that those goods move. First, they start off at a factory in another country. Potentially, they have to go to a warehouse. From a warehouse, they have to go to a port. If it's ocean, they have to go to an airport. If it's air, they have to move somewhere else, land at a port, clear customs. Customs brokerage is something that is really challenging because every country has a different customs brokerage regulations and departments. From there, they go to another port. From there, they can potentially go to another warehouse. There's a lot of complexities that people don't see. And from there, they ultimately get delivered to the end consumer, right? Freight forwarding companies are really the project coordinators of all of this. They act almost as a middleman where they understand, okay, there's all of these complexities. There's a lot of different parties that have to move these goods physically. And unlike humans... Goods can't actually go clear customs by themselves. They can't just get on the plane by themselves. They can't get in an ocean carrier by themselves. Someone has to move all these things, do all the transaction, all the paperwork. Freight forwarding companies make sure that it all works. And frankly, there's always issues. Freight forwarding companies are the ones that are in charge of solving those issues on behalf of companies that need to move goods globally. So very services heavy industry, you're dealing with like, huge silos and disconnected data sources, a lot of complexity, a lot of continuous issues, and freight forwarding companies make sure that it all tries to go as smoothly as possible. When it doesn't, they fix it, and they're connecting all the different parties in the move of a good. It can be 14, it can be 16, it can be 20 parties, kind of the project managers of the space and you know multi-trillion dollar industry. 
where you have these really large companies operating and you also have a really fragmented industry, lots of SMB, lots of mid-market. But that's where the freight forwarder comes in. If you are a company that needs to ship goods, instead of you going and managing that complexity, you hire a freight forwarding company to manage it on your behalf. Got it. Are some of them specialized in certain areas? For example, like maybe it's like a certain type of good or it's moving through ocean versus air or, you know, maybe it's a certain type of region. Hey, we're really good from getting goods from Asia to the U.S. or something like, is that how they're kind of bucketed or is it not quite that way? I mean, it definitely is. You start thinking about market segmentation, essentially. If you think about kind of enterprise-grade freight forwarding companies, the DHLs of the world, the Cunanagos, these massive companies, they will move everything in every single region. They have offices in every country, and they can coordinate anywhere you need to move things to. If you think about the mid-market and the SMB segment, it acts much more as a network. If you're a smaller freight forwarder or a medium-sized freight forwarder, you work with another counterpart, another freight forwarding company in each of the countries that you move goods to and from. And in those, people definitely end up specializing. Not everybody, but folks end up specializing. You could either specialize based on trade routes. For example, if you're a small freight forwarding company in Brazil, you will specialize on things coming in to Brazil or out of Brazil, or potentially only the import or the export side and you work with partners everywhere. There's other freight forwarding companies and customers that we work with that specialize in very niche markets. I can think of one of our customers, they specialize in art, for example, like highly valuable art. That's their specialty and they've built an amazing business by being able to do that. Other freight forwarding companies specialize in perishables or in moving flowers. So yeah, lots of segmentation, both by niches and by geography in the market. So you described like two freight forwarders potentially having to work together, right? I imagine they have some sort of ERP-like system that controls their sort of stuff. And then they probably need to share data. Now, of course, hopefully, you know, if they're using Logic Sport or something like that, it might make it easier, right? But yeah. one, what are those systems that they might be using? Is, is that what like the cargo wises of the world and stuff are doing? And then do they have this challenge of being able to talk to each other? Because if they're trying to work with each other, I imagine they... They need their systems to like flow data back and forth to do the handoff. So what's the challenges there? Yeah, definitely. So to your point, freight forwarding companies always use an operating system, kind of key players in that space. CargoWise is one of them. Descartes Systems Group, another publicly traded company has systems. E2Open, companies sometimes build their own internal operating systems. And that is a challenge. It's not just one freight forwarder working with another. It's one freight forwarder working with many. If you talk to most of our customers, they have agents or other freight forwarders in how many countries do we have? I don't know, 190 something. They have agents in all of those countries. So there is a big gap in terms of those systems being disconnected, particularly because that system is not uniform. Not everybody uses the same thing. That's something that we think about solving very much like long term, that relationship of freight forwarder with another freight forwarding company. The biggest challenge, though, for freight forwarders is how do they provide their customer, the people that actually pay them money, visibility into what's happening with their supply chain. And when we jumped into this industry, two things were really interesting for me. The way that people were providing visibility into what was happening with their goods is the customer would have to call into the operation or email the operation and say, hey, what's happening with my containers or what's happening with my pallets? And they would get an answer. So that to me felt very antiquated. I mentioned Juan showing up to the office every morning, 300 emails from his customers. And he was like, there has to be a way to streamline this. So that's what we 
try to solve really like trying to figure out how do we help the freight forwarding company deliver the best experience possible for their customers and streamline that communication, but also that visibility. Yeah. So I think like some of these companies have been around for hundreds of years. Like they've just been, they've been doing things for a very long time. I guess like when you first came to them with the product, it sounds like actually, well, you embedded in one of them. So you really knew the pain point or something like you understood their workflows, but you go to somebody who's been operating for a hundred plus years. And now you're saying, Hey, listen, we're going to change up your process, right? Or even though we're going to help you get more efficient or something like that, but you're still saying we're going to help you change. And it's like, well, we've been doing this for longer than you've been you know, alive, right? Um, what was that like? How do you get them to say, you know what, this is something that we will do and that we're excited about? Like, how did you convince them to make that change? When we started talking to these companies about providing better visibility and a better experience to their customers online, there was a lot of pushback there of people saying, hey, my customers don't want to go into an online system. They rather call me, they rather email me and work with me direct, which we felt was interesting and certainly something that we considered from the get-go. The other thing, though, that we didn't realize is freight forwarding is a low-margin business. And I think part of the reason that folks had not really provided visibility was because in the lack of visibility in that black box, and I heard this actually from the CEO of D.B. Schenker, the third largest forwarder in the world. He's like, in that black box, that's where we make our margins. So people were worried about exposing visibility. Part of what happened is you had Flexport coming in, you had other online freight forwarders coming in and really pushing the industry forward, kind of putting pressure on freight forwarders to have to digitize. The other thing that it did is that it started changing the mindset of what shippers, of what folks that move goods expect from their freight forwarding company. We went from a world in which shippers' expectations was to be able to call or to email to now going to their freight forwarder and saying, I need online visibility. And if you don't deliver online visibility for me, I am going to churn and I'm going to go work with another freight forwarding company. Online freight forwarders put a lot of pressure and then COVID further amplified that where people were no longer home, no longer meeting in offices. People wanted systems to be able to track and manage their goods. So in some ways, I think we made a really good call in thinking that while people were telling us that this wasn't going to land very well, we felt that it would add value to them. And it has, and I'll talk about value in a little bit. But in other ways, there was a stroke of luck there also, where you have a lot of pressure coming from the space, from competitive companies like the Flexports of the world. And you had COVID, which accelerated the digital transformation of the industry drastically because shippers were now going to their freight forwarders and saying, I need better solutions. Again, when your paying customers are coming to you and saying, I need better tech, you have to deliver it. That's a little bit of why we've been able to be so successful and penetrate the market so quickly. The other aspect, though, going back a little bit to folks' concerns about exposing that black box, which is where they made their margins, we really thought about this as, okay, if we help you deliver a product that your customers can use, where is the value going to be for you? And the first thing we noticed was when our customers were using our product, it was so much better than anything that their competitors could use. They were actually going out and selling with the product. They were showing up to shippers and saying, hey, shipper, I have great rates, I have great service, but I have great technology. And they started to make so much money by using our product as a value add. We have a customer out of Chicago 
and I was meeting with them a couple of weeks ago in person, the first year of operation, they added $50 million in new revenue and attributed to Logic Sport directly. And that's something that we consistently hear from smaller customers. Hey, I added a couple million dollars from larger customers. You start talking about these figures. But when you can tie to revenue, that's a great, great story to tell. That was one. We also saw our customers expanding share of wallet. Shippers traditionally don't work with only one freight forwarder. It's too risky for them. But we did see our customers starting to expand share of wallet with their existing customer base because they were delivering much better tech than some of their competitors. And then the third one, which has been fascinating to me, has been kind of that efficiency component. You think about freight forwarding being services heavy and really managing phone calls and emails, sending reports to all of their customers. When they're able to put them online and make them much more self-serve, that gives them tremendous efficiency. I was meeting with another one of our customers a couple of weeks ago as well. You can tell I've been meeting with a lot of our customers, but I was meeting with them and I asked them that efficiency question. How do you think about efficiency for Logics Board? And they actually did an internal study. They looked at how many accounts each one of their operators could manage before Logics Board and how many accounts their operators could manage post Logics Board. They increased it by 50%. When you start thinking about if we can deploy software that's going to make us money, expand share of wallets, and allow us to scale our business with technology as opposed to having to add people continuously. It's such a large value driver. It's what's giving us a huge advantage. And obviously, the numbers show that. I want to actually dive into the vertical SaaS kind of components of what you're building. But actually, before we do that, maybe I'll ask a question. You mentioned Flexport a number of times. I don't know what they're valued at, but they're valued at a huge multiple billions, right? And I think a lot of people think like, well, they've got planes and they've got all these things. And you know, you guys are starting out. Flexport's already a billion dollar plus company. Like you guys have to be crazy to be taking on Flexport. So, I mean, how would you describe that to people who are just like, well, Flexport was out there. Like what made you guys think you could compete with them? It's a complete kind of change in paradigm. And we ran into this a lot when we were raising our seed round, actually. And that question was the one that we would get the most. And at that point, people were not very educated into freight forwarding, kind of the dynamics and how large the industry was. But we kind of slice it. Flexport at its core is a freight forwarding company. The service that they offer to their customers is we will move your goods from A to Z and we will take care of all that intricacy. They've built amazing technology for their operation to provide visibility to their customers. And it gives them a huge advantage. It gives them a really large advantage to have such a strong tech platform. But you're talking about an industry that's multi-trillion dollars. Flexport ultimately, and other companies like them, there's now a lot of online freight forwarders in different regions of the world. They will take a very small percentage of that market. The market is so fragmented. Even if you think about building one of the larger businesses in the world, you're taking a couple points off an entire market. The way that we've thought about it is freight forwarding companies already own the customer base. They have great services. They have great rates. What they were missing was to be able to offer that same level of technology. So we almost flipped it on its head. Instead of saying, let's go build a logistics company with kind of the intricacies of building a logistics company and a technology company at the same time, we really focused and said, well, what if we build software to help everybody else in the industry all of Flexport's competitors be able to digitize. So at our core, we actually don't compete with Flexport. All of our customers 
compete with Flexport and we're the product that can come in and say, hey, we'll level the playing field and we'll democratize kind of great customer experience for all freight forwarding companies globally. It's a little bit of logistics versus SaaS, two very different models. Frankly, I think Flexport has built a great business. I, I saw their valuation yesterday it was $8 billion. They've done a phenomenal job. But what we find when our customers go head to head against Flexport, technology is essentially the same. We've built great tech for our customers. Our customers end up winning that business. I think that makes sense because from the perspective of those customers have been around for a long time, they've built these longstanding relationships. And now if they have the digital capability to be able to give the real-time visibility to their customers, of course, you want to stay with a trusted relationship that you've had for a very long time. So I think also, you know, what's funny is this concept of so-called arming the rebels, which, you know, Shopify talks about it, right? Which is like, there was Amazon out there for a very long time and it's built this amazing, amazing brand. But meanwhile, there's all these individual folks who want to start brands and Shopify is giving them the tools to be able to do that. And that's kind of the analogy I almost think about is like larger companies that you're dealing with, obviously, and, and companies that have been around for a very long time, but it's still like giving them the tools to be able to move further into digitization and deliver event better end user kind of value prop. So one thing I'm curious actually in that vein though, is you kind of almost have like a B2B to B to C. I'll describe what that means in my view, but it's like you are helping the freight forwarders who then have these shippers who then actually are delivering to an end user, right? A customer along the way. And if you're able to provide better visibility to the freight forwarders, then they're also able to provide better visibility to the shippers and then their customers, right? So it's helping almost everybody kind of win more deals. Do you ever almost frame it as like the shippers are, are your customers too, in the sense of like, if you give a shipper a really good experience with one of the freight forwarders that they're using, then they're going to go to other freight forwarders and be like, Hey, listen, have you guys heard of Logic Sport? Like maybe you guys should use this because we freaking love it. That actually happens a really good amount. So what I would think is you're right. Like paying customer for us is the freight forwarding company. But our value proposition to the freight forwarder is, hey, in your tech stack, we are going to focus relentlessly on making sure that you are offering the best experience possible to your customers. So really the users of our products are the freight forwarding customers, which are shippers. And it can be, a small shipper that moves two containers a year to the massive kind of GEs, Procter & Gamble's, Tesla's of the world using the application. So we think about building solutions that solve the pain points of the shippers. How do we give you better visibility into our software and how do we help you manage your supply chain in one single place? So certainly what we do find is companies calling us, you know, as a company, we're very kind of ABM outbound focused. But we do have freight forwarders calling us and saying, like, I got a call from one of my largest shippers. They're using Logix Board with another freight forwarding company, and they're putting pressure on me to have to implement Logix Board. Can I see your solution? So there's been a really nice kind of network effect there for us of shippers applying pressure on their freight forwarding companies to implement Logix Board. It's something that we've seen. And frankly, that is accelerating more and more as we start getting more market share. It's a really, really interesting dynamic. And shippers coming to us directly sometimes and saying, hey, love your solution. Could I implement this for my operation as well? Because ultimately, it solves their specific pain points. I think that dives perfectly into actually the vertical SaaS piece, because I think part of the way that you're able to get that network effect is by building specific to a vertical and solving those pain points you know, better than a horizontal solution would do. So you know, I think... 
What I'd like to ask about building a vertical SaaS company, I'll start high level, is we've talked about you have a lot of customers, right? And they're expanding very rapidly. Do you benefit more from word of mouth given that there are presumably fewer competitors at scale in your same area because not as many people are building in vertical SaaS as they would be in horizontal SaaS? What I would say is in terms of like customer experience, which is really where we've carved out our niche, we're the leader in that space. And to your point, not a very big kind of competitive field. Word of mouth is interesting. We're still, again, very focused on kind of an outbound motion, identifying these companies and reaching out direct. The fascinating thing about this is we have customers in 20 different countries. And I see a future in, you know, a year from now, we have customers in 50 countries. You're playing across the entire globe. So word of mouth there becomes a little bit trickier because you have such big distances between these companies. But we do hear from freight forwarders of like, hey, I was talking to freight forwarder XYZ at a conference. They won't stop raving about your product. Can we have a conversation as well? To me, word of mouth comes the most from shippers. It happens from freight forwarding companies as well. But from shippers specifically, a lot of what we find is freight forwarders see logic sport is such a huge differentiator for them. They don't want to go across the street to another freight forwarding company and say, hey, implement Logic Sport as well. That's been pretty fascinating for us to navigate, but growth has been really quick. I think word of mouth and kind of the brand that we're building in the market where we're really focused on the customer experience, but also how do we help these companies navigate that process and that change management? I think we build a really good reputation there and we start seeing more and more companies reaching out to us directly trying to understand how they can implement this and deliver a better solution to their customer base. How does that outbound side of things work, though? Maybe if we dive more into that, where it's, again, vertical SaaS versus horizontal SaaS, horizontal SaaS, it's like you definitely have ABM efforts and and you have kind of a target persona in mind, but obviously you can go across different industries, right? And you can target the beverage industry, you could target the retail, and you can also target the financial services industry, right? From your perspective, do you almost see a benefit because it's freight forwarder specifically, where it's like, you know, okay, these are the trade shows I need to go to. These are the conferences I need to attend. These are like maybe certain regions where there's higher density, like in port cities or areas like that, where I know, okay, if I go and do a customer event there, maybe I can get more folks to come in. Like, I mean, it's never easy, but is that like kind of a little bit easier to get the leads? For sure. I mean, definitely you start, I mean, what you mentioned is key, but also you understand the pain points of these companies really deeply. It allows you to focus on what are their pain points and how do we solve for them? So certainly outbound, identifying these companies and reaching out when you can get so kind of deep into the pain points, understanding it and how you can layer in value. That's really helpful. I was the first account executive at Logic Sport. Juan was essentially the first SDR, right? So we had to learn this from the get-go where he was calling, he was emailing LinkedIn, trying to get meetings. And I was trying to figure out how do we sell this thing? We actually sold, I think, our first 10 customers off a PowerPoint presentation, which was fascinating. But outbound gets a little bit easier, much more targeted. And you do start to identify where do these people live? What are the trade shows that they're going to? If we're doing webinars, how do we talk specifically to the pain that they have and not to the pain of many that potentially have different pain points? And the other aspect is very regional. Freight forwarding companies, again, tend to consolidate around key ports, either airports or ocean ports. 
they move every type of good and every type of transportation. It can be ocean, it can be rail, it can be air. They tend to have presences in specific regions. And when we do do roadshows or customer events, we consolidate them around those specific geographies. That's worked very well for us also. Got it. Okay. That makes sense. What about employees coming into the organization. So you're hiring, I know some of the folks you've hired, you've hired from horizontal companies, especially some of those based in Seattle. And they're great companies, right? That have done extraordinarily well, some of the largest companies in the world, right? But that being said, those employees, you know the pain point super well, right? And you've lived it and you've sold it and you've had to talk with customers about it. They are coming in and They don't know the complexity. So is that more of a challenge in terms of enablement? Like, is that something you have to almost focus on earlier than maybe say a a horizontal company might have to? Yeah, it is. It is something. So one of the things that we look for very deeply, and I think we've built a little bit different than other folks in the space. Like we look deeply for curiosity. Like I want people that are deeply curious and trying to understand the domain. And even if they don't come from it, they're deeply curious about how to understand it. So lots of enablement internally. That was one of the first things we built, Freight Forwarding 101, which Juan used to run, right? But a lot of enablement for different parts of the team, that's been really beneficial. The other aspect that's been really key, I think we become such an integral part of our customers' tech stack that they want to collaborate very deeply with us on it. So we talk to our customers a lot. Juan now runs the entire customer experience team. We build a really good motion where we have such a strong partnership with our customers that we can leverage them to try to deliver that knowledge, the pain points to the rest of the organization. So lots of enablement, but also lots of collaboration with our existing customer base where people can come in and if they're curious, they can learn the space. There's always going to be intricacy. So what we've done is also brought on people from the freight forwarding industry that can complement that almost thinking about them as like guilt for the rest of the organization. If you know freight forwarding really well, how do you spread that knowledge to the broader company? The combination of all those things has worked very, very well. For some of the vertical SaaS founders that are listening, I think they sometimes get the advice of, hey, you're selling in into vertical SaaS, find somebody who has sold there before. They already have the Rolodex, makes it a lot easier for them to scale up, to start selling into companies. Has that been your experience? I think there's so many ways to build a company, Shomik. And I think a lot of times when you're a founder, you get so much advice from so many different places. It's not something that we focused on deeply, frankly. I mean, we have people on the sales team that do come from freight forwarding. There's folks on the sales team that do not come from freight forwarding and they come from SaaS. I think ultimately you want people that are really, really good and really curious to try to understand pain point and how do you map value to it. I will say, I think there is a benefit there in the sense of the Rolodex that comes with it, right? So if you're relying on that to be kind of your demand gen or your lead gen engine, I think it makes sense. You need to have a really strong lead gen engine if you want to do it in another way. And I think we've built like two or three aspects to our demand gen that work really well. So we have continuous flow of leads and we can train people into how do you understand the freight forwarding pain points? How do you sell against them? How do you build relationships with these folks? So I can picture it going, frankly, both ways. I can see the positive in it. I can see the con in it. Ultimately, you want to just bring on great people that are really curious about the pain points of your customers. Again, not something that we focused on 
tremendously, but we do complement it, right? We have solutions engineers that actually come from freight forwarding. So when we're out there talking to freight forwarders, we can speak that language deeply and understand their pain points. So you definitely need to tie to it. You need to be able to understand their challenges. You need to be able to speak their language. But we didn't think about it as kind of the demand engine that we wanted to build out. I wanted something that we could build that was truly going to be scalable. I think that's interesting, the con part of it, which is basically, hey, you might become too reliant on any one person's Rolodex and then never actually build the lead funnel and all the things involved with that that actually lead to a successful business over the long term. So that's a very interesting point. Well, so with that, I guess, what would you say is the biggest challenge to building a vertical SaaS company? I think part of what we deal with, honestly, is that we become such an you know, I mentioned integral parts of what our customers rely on to be able to run their business and to deliver a great customer experience, that there's so many things that we could potentially do, right? There's just so many things. I was actually on my phone yesterday looking at pictures from like three or four years ago, and I ran into this image of Logic's board, and it had one tab. It had one module at the top, and I look at our system now, and it's got like nine or 10 modules at the top. And I was talking to our VP of product today and I was like, look at the difference between us. There's one module and now we have like nine or 10. And he, he came back to me and was like, we're just getting started. Like, what are you talking about? There's so much to do. I think that's kind of the beauty of vertical SaaS is once you find product market fit and you're able to deliver a lot of value, there's so many opportunities for growth and so many pain points to solve. The challenge is that there's many. There's a lot of pain points to solve. There's a lot of things that people want to be able to partner up with us on. So keeping focused, I think, becomes really challenging where you have a finite set of resources, a lot of opportunities where you can continue to grow and deliver value for your customers and staying really focused, not getting distracted by taking too many paths at once. I think that's probably both the beauty and the opportunity in vertical SaaS, but also one of the things that that gets hard. Like we have people reaching out to us that are not in our ICP. They're not the customer that we sell to today. And they're like, Hey, I want to buy your product." And having those conversations of like, Hey, you're not the customer base that I sell to. I'm not going to be able to deliver or integrate to the systems that you have. Being able to say no becomes so important because any way you slice it in this market, there's billion dollar opportunities everywhere, but staying focused and doing it kind of incrementally think that's probably one of the hardest parts, honestly, because as a founder and as a team, you want to go solve it all at once. So that part to me has been really fascinating. And frankly, I've learned a lot. We learned a lot from mistakes. When I went to this company in Colombia that we were talking about earlier, the first product that we built tried to do everything. It was really wide, but really thin. And what we ended up realizing is like, no, you tackle this in terms of blocks. You start with a really important problem. And if you find yourself having to add a bunch of more features to find product market fit, you don't have it yet. Take a step back, rethink it, and really try to identify that pain point. Once you find it, someone told me this once, and I said, hey, how do you know when you have product market fit? And now I think I have a good idea. But how do you know when you have product market fit? And they said, it slaps you in the face. You'll know it when you find it. And I felt like that. I remember the, where I was sitting, where I was exactly when I felt it. That's a big part of it. You start somewhere and then you build your way up as opposed to trying to take everything at once. That's what worked for us. I'm sure for other people, a different formula works. 
but that's a little bit of the beauty and the challenge of vertical software. So last question for you, if we're doing this again in three years, right? What will Logix Board be doing for customers at that point in time? I've become, and really I think we identified this from the get-go, I think the experience and just not just freight forwarding, but really the entire supply chain, the experience of shipping goods across borders and every single method of transportation is so archaic. I really want us to be the system that powers the entire experience of global supply chain. And when you think about global supply chain, I think I was looking at the numbers the other day, it was like a $12 trillion industry. I mean, you're talking significant points of GDP. I want to be the customer experience layer that powers the entire supply chain, where we can go to different parties in the supply chain and say, hey, it doesn't matter what systems you use or where do you, you have your data sources, we'll be able to bring that into one single pane of glass. And that's something that we're talking a lot about internally as a company and also with our customers. You have multiple systems of record. You have disparate data sources. We want to build that single interface that you can deliver to your customers to be able to manage and track their operation. That's where I see us going a lot. I brought it up earlier. I told you we went very wide at the beginning. Now I want to go wide, also deep, but really focusing how do we build the customer experience layer that's agnostic to any of the data sources or any of the operating systems in the space. That's a pretty exciting vision. It's a big dream. It's a big dream. It's a big dream. <laughs> That's a big number in terms of TAM that you guys are targeting. So I'd love I to know. see it. <laughs> so wrapping things up, we have two questions we ask everybody on Software Snack Bites. So first is like, what's your favorite technology app that you've played with? Or if you don't have one of those, then we'll just go with what's your favorite TV show recently? Oh, man. So... I am a pretty basic guy when it comes to technology and pretty basic kind of tech stack. You know, give me a calendar, give me email, give me Slack, Grammarly, Salesforce access, and I'm good. The technology that for me has become like really, really critical is superhuman, honestly. Like superhuman for me has become this system that just like powers my life. Certainly not new, but when I think about technology that for me as a founder and a CEO is critical, I think superhuman is that system. Favorite TV show? I'd have a hard time answering that one, honestly. <laughs> well, you know, Superhuman just released, I think, their AI tools and just can't wait to get a hand on that because, oh my God, they they have so much of my data on how I write and message things and, and stuff like that, that being able to train something in my own voice would just shave years off my... Uh, I know if uh, <laughs> I worked that time. So I'm, I'm really excited for that. But last one that we ask is, uh, what's your favorite snack? I'd have to go back to my Colombian roots. I mentioned like my parents were born in Colombia. I lived in Colombia when I was a kid. I'd probably go back there. Empanadas, I love. Patacones, I love. Arepas, I love. All of that really bad thing for you that's like fried. I love all that. I don't eat it often unless I'm going to visit my folks in South America, but I'd say that's probably it, frankly. Just trying to keep it close to the roots. There's one soup that I really like. That's like it's like a thick potato soup and it's like it's like comfort. Yes. Ajiaco. Yeah. Yeah. I grew up eating that at the lunch and dinner table. It's incredible. And like I don't actually think I mean I'm sure you can make it unhealthy, but I think you can make it healthy too. And it just tastes so good. It's so filling. It's like it's comforting. Like I just remember I ate that at somebody's house when I was in Bogota and I just felt like I was like part of their family. You know, I was just like, oh my God, like this food is just making me feel like I'm, you know, I'm a part of everything going on here. We'll have to take you to Colombia again one day. My folks live there. 
I'll have my mom make you a Hyaku. I'm sure you'll enjoy that. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. But Julian, thanks so much for the time and, and walking through everything. If people want to find you and get in touch, where can they reach out? And LinkedIn, Julian Alvarez, LogicSport, or Julian at LogicSport.com. Either of those work. And thank you so much for having me. Absolute pleasure. I thought the questions were phenomenal. But as you can tell, I get so excited talking about this that I appreciate the avenue. Well, I'm sure a lot of vertical SaaS founders and also folks that are interested in doing stuff in supply chain generally will be reaching out. So thanks again for the time and talk to you soon. Awesome. Awesome.